This is The Way Forward. I'm Judy Olian, President of Quinnipiac University. We're podcasting conversations with provocative trailblazers who are seeking solutions to today's challenges. In this episode, my guest is Chuck Sayer, Senior Deloitte Partner, a double Bobcat alumnus, and a trustee of Quinnipiac. We cover his ideas for young professionals and those who manage them in his new book, You Got This Kid, Words of Advice for Young Leaders. Drawing on 30 years of experience, Saya offers seven unforgettable animal analogies between the business world and the animal kingdom, which help you figure out how to enter as a newbie in an organization, find your secret source, transform from, say, a caterpillar into a butterfly, and thrive among your part of dolphins in a team that supports you. Stay tuned. You'll be a better young leader and a more impactful mentor by learning from Chuck Sayer's leadership journey. Thanks for joining us on The Way Forward. I am thrilled to welcome our trustee, our Quinnipiac alum of the undergraduate class of 91 and the MBA class of 94 to The Way Forward. Chuck is a senior partner at Deloitte. He ran the risk and financial advisory practice. And most importantly, he is the author of this book, You Got This Kid. I uh, can tell you that it was not just a joy to read, but it left me so energized um, at the end of it, both because of the invaluable advice I learned um, about young people but also how I can be a better manager and mentor. So that's gonna be a lot of what we talk about today. Uh, Chuck, thank you for all you do for Quinnipiac, for for being a trustee, for being a Bobcat for life, and for uh, being with us today. And I will tell everyone, uh, we will incorporate your questions as we go. So just enter them in the Q&A and we'll get to them uh, as much as we can. And I have a lot of questions for Chuck, so we're gonna try and get through them. Um, I loved the book. It's 42 very quick and easily read uh, pages. It tells seven stories about animals that are metaphors for, for the world to work, for how young people can enter the work world and how managers can manage them better. But I found that to be a really unique structure for the book. So how do you come up with that structure and those analogies? So first, thank you for having me. And I'm excited to address Bobcat Nation and friends of Bobcat Nation. And you're right, I'm a Bobcat for life. Um, The other thing I I do want to say, Judy, just up front, I promised myself that I would do this, that that I, I remind everyone that all of the proceeds are going to the for the benefit of lupus research, environmental sustainability studies, and to make it more intimate for Bobcat Nation, my wife and I, Allison, have established a fund and all of the proceeds will go to that fund and you and the institution have agreed to help us with those two main areas. I I did wanna make sure I pointed that out right up front. And I wanna make sure that I thank you from the bottom of my heart. All of the proceeds are coming to Quinnipiac and to those important purposes, So, so thank you. Thank you. And Alex. Yes. So um, what led me to the structure? Um, You know, I wanted to make the book fun. I wanted to make it short. I said 10,000 words or less. I wanted to make it more memorable for people. And I I thought if I did that, um, we would have more of an impact. I think you and I talked about this. I had a number of publishers that reached out to me after I showed the transcript of the outline and, and, and a chapter. And they wanted me to tie the book to leadership frameworks. And I I stuck to my guns and said, that's not the style that I want. I want to use animal analogies to compare the animal kingdom to the corporate jungle. I thought that that would be fun. But most important, it would be more memorable for the reader. You would remember a mandarin duck and what that means to your special sauce, what a scorpion is in the business world, what a pot of dolphins can do for you, and the other four animals that we use. And I'm... I'm really glad that I did that because the people that have read the book and we've had such great results these first four weeks in purchases, 
I, I am having a ton of fun with the interaction around what is your favorite animal? And they and we get to talk about why they like a particular animal or not. So that's why I wanted it to be fun. I also have always used analogies to inspire my teams to coach and mentor people. And it came natural to me to sort of do it that way. Uh, well, it was certainly memorable for me. I've read the book twice. Actually, while I'm working out, it's such an easy read. But we already in our team, in the leadership team, use these animals to describe experiences and people. So it really does stick to you. So I want to really take us through the animals um, and the analogies as students, on the one hand, begin their careers and later on as mentors manage them. So you do start out with this Mandarin duck who commands a lot of attention the day they arrive on their first job. So talk about that duck and what do you do as you arrive on a job as a newbie? Yeah. So, so first, there's, there's two sections of the book, purposefully. There's, it's about you, but it's not all about you. There's some forces that are going to shape your career that you have to be able to navigate through. But the it's about you section is about your own development and understanding who you are and what you bring. Now, the Mandarin duck, and every story minus one is a true story. The Mandarin duck is a true story. This duck, this Mandarin duck, this beautiful duck flies into Central Park, lands in a pond, is more beautiful than any of the other ducks, looks very different, has a special sauce as we describe it in, in, in the book. And what I would tell young people first job, because that's your question. Your, your question is about first job. It took me a long time to figure out what my special sauce is. It's not your competency. It's not your education. It's going to take you a while to figure out your special sauce. But there is a way to differentiate yourself on your first job. And it might sound somewhat cliche-ish, but it, it truly is work ethic, um, but a little bit more than work ethic. It's, it's whenever you're giving a, your first task, regardless of what the task is, whether you like it or not, you should do it with a, as much energy as if you, are, if you love it. And if you do that, you're going to prove to your manager that you're part of the team, you're willing to do things for the team, and it'll open doors for you. Since you're also talking not just about figuring out how, how you are special, but also the humility of coming in as a newbie, and, and, and you got to pay your dues. I mean, you talked about a way you did that on your first job. I did, and 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 um, the the storyline associated with that was my first job was, or my first task was a brutal task. I was sent to a print shop, and I was literally asked to watch what they called at the time customer confirmations coming off the printer, going into envelopes, and being mailed. And I say in the book that I wanted to put my eyes out. And I did, I wanted to put my eyes out, but instead, of, and, I, and I wanted to be aggressive back to my manager. It's the only part of the book and it's not in the Mandarin duck section. It's actually in the, in, in, in the butterfly section um, where I'm transforming. Um, I, it's the only place that I use a curse word in the entire book. And my editor and I went back and forth about whether I should do that or not, but I wanted to show the reader the, the frustration that you can have with your first job. But instead of cursing at him, I said to him, look, I've seen some inefficiencies in the way these folks are doing this. And he, I think he was shocked at my response. And as a result of that, it opened doors. We created a partnership. He's one of my, my best mentors today because of it. And it opened doors for me. I, the, 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 the roles that I got post that assignment were much, much better because I didn't react negatively, even though the job was a miserable one. Oh, and by the way, thank you for posting the link in the Q&A. You can see where you can get it on Amazon and I highly recommend it. Um, the second animal, if you will, is the caterpillar slash butterfly that morphs through different stages. And, and you, you point out that only 10% of caterpillars actually become butterflies that fly. So there's a natural tournament model, if you will. So how does one transition 
successfully through those phases? Yeah, so um, the most important part of that question is the 10%, Judy. It it only 10% of people make it to the highest levels of corporate America. It's hard to get there. The interesting thing is, is the book is entitled, You Got This Kid, Words of Advice for Young Leaders. And leaders that get the book don't just say, I'm handing this down to the next generation because they're considered young. They understand that your entire career is about development. And even though they might be in that 10% that went from caterpillar to butterfly, they understand that they're still developing. They immediately read the book because of it. The art illustrator, Alexia, she was absolutely outstanding. If you haven't read the book yet, you see her drawings. She really brought the book to life. I also had two other students that, that worked with me that were Quinnipiac students, Amy. You can all see them in the back of the book, their last names, but Amy and, and, and Alamade uh, both brought brilliance in the marketing end of the book and, and the business end. Yes, that's, yeah, that's the caterpillar. Little, this is the caterpillar. That is the caterpillar. That's but um, the, they, they actually named the caterpillar William, which I think is brilliant, right? But really, when they read the chapter and we talked about what would be underneath William, it said, stay hungry. And your question is about development, stages of development. And I thought that did a beautiful thing that each stage of your development, you, you do, you have to stay hungry. And that goes from an egg all the way through to butterfly stage stages. And true leaders understand that they're never done developing and they stay hungry. So my, my advice to leaders, my, my advice to, to young people is you need to stay hungry throughout your entire journey my advice to leaders is make sure that you stay hungry because you never really are done developing. I also think that there, there was another another message in, in the caterpillar to butterfly analogy, and that is that it takes time to get to be the butterfly. You do actually, quote, have to pay your dues. You do have to go through these transitions. It's not instant. And yeah. so have, have patience, excel, be the Mandarin duck. But but recognize that there are some stages of development. It's, that's absolutely right. And you know, I, I in, in talking to a lot of young people that have read the book, and, and we've, we've we've centered on this chapter. A lot of people gravitate to this chapter because it is about them starting their career and how quickly can they get to butterfly. And a lot of people confuse that with with financial outcome. You, you can be in your early 20s and get to a financial outcome where you think that that's the butterfly stage. It's not. It's not. Your financial outcome can happen in the egg stage if you come up with a great new idea, especially this generation with technology and the way in which they're able to become entrepreneurial. But it's not about that. It's about continuous development, staying hungry throughout the life cycle of your career and, ne and never letting up on, on, on how you learn. And I'm encouraging people to put their questions in the Q&A, and I promise I'm going to get to you. Um, the next um, animal analogy, and this is the third one, and, and I have to say that even as a seasoned professional by now, this is very relevant to all of us, is the armadillo developing a thick skin and maybe even some armor. Why? How? Um, so this chapter was a tough one for me, um, because of my personal story that gave me a thick skin that, um, even my boys, um, who read it for the first time, it was the first time that they really understood what gave me my thick skin. But the, the story starts out and it's a true story. You can Google it. You can write Alex Armadillo, Isabella is his mom. Um, the story starts out with Alex who's walking the jungle. Alex is the baby armadillo. And a puma comes out and grabs him in his jaw, and Alex is, gets bloodied, escapes the puma, makes it back to mom's den. And I'll tell you in a second what happens to, to Alex. And then I share my story. My story is centered around 9-11, and I, I want this to be upbeat. So, I, you know, it ends upbeat, but it, it, it's hard to hear. Um, but, I'll, but I'll share some of it. If that's okay, Judy, I'll share some of it. Um, you know, I, I, I write in the book that I was the last person out of Two World Financial Center, which those of you that are not from New York, that's what's connected to, to, to that, that's what's connected to the towers. 
And I was the last person because I was part of the executive team and I needed to get everybody out of the building or make sure everybody was out of the building. And we walked south, which was the wrong answer. And the wrong answer because the wind was blowing south. And um, when the first building came down, uh, we ran. We ran to the end of the island where the Hudson River meets the, the East River. And or, yeah, when the, where the Hudson meets the East. And I had a choice, either to jump in or be consumed by the smoke. And someone yelled, we can breathe through this. It's secondary smoke. You know, long story short, I ran out of lower Manhattan. I do believe I was the first person out of lower Manhattan covered in, in gray. And an EMS worker walked with me for 20 blocks trying to reach Allison where her and Ethan were on 85th Street. Um, and he did. And I got to live my life. I wrote a poem that didn't make it to the book. It was called The Fortunate One. I was the fortunate one to make it out. And that is what is deep inside me that has given me my thick skin. So when I've been passed over for a promotion or I haven't been given the raise I want or I haven't been given the opportunity I want or someone attacks me, it's that thick skin that I sort of draw on to make things roll off of me. So in that chapter, what I say to people is you need to develop a thick skin. Now, it's important to go back to Alex. Um, Alex didn't make it. He didn't make it. Vultures come around and, and they wait for Alex to, to die. And the point that I highlight there is that he was only two years into his life and his skin wasn't thick enough yet. So it takes a while to develop that thick skin, but you really need to do reflection and self-development to understand what it is that allows things to roll off of your back. I hope I didn't bring the mood down too much there. No, it's actually a, a, a beautiful story of resilience. And that's exactly what thick skin does for you. It, it makes you resilient. Um, I want to uh, turn to a couple of questions here. Yeah. Uh, there's one from Christina here who asks, what's your, um, she's, she's back at Quinnipiac getting a, a master's degree. Welcome back. I wa she wants to ask what your best advice is to get yourself out of the egg phase uh, and for looking for a company that will help with her own development. Yeah. So there's, there's, um, there's actually two questions in there. We, we didn't get to the scorpion, which I'm, I'm sure we will. Momentarily. So part, of the, part, part of that is answering it with, with the scorpion. Another part is answering it with how William um, advanced his journey. Um, at the end of the butterfly story, I, I tell that story about the print shop. And in that story of the print shop, what I'm trying to articulate to you is that you're going to be given assignments that you don't necessarily like. And you have to do them with energy. You have to do them with passion. And therefore, you're, what you're showing your managers is that you are, you are, you understand your role as part of a team. So my advice to young people all the time that want to go from development quickly to the next stage is the tasks at hand are very, very important for you to open doors for yourself. The reason I bring up scorpions is because part of your, part of this is not in your control. That part is in. Go ahead. So I wanted you to maybe transition to the scorpion. And, okay. and, and as we transition, I mean, one of the great things about Chuck's book is it's also recognizing what you do and what you don't control, though yeah. you can have some influence over it. So yeah, you said the scorpion, and that's about the manager who's a scorpion. Yeah, I mean, you said it perfectly. The transition is the things that are not in your control, but you can navigate them. And the first story is the scorpion. And by the way, everyone that reads the book that I ask what is their favorite, you know, character or animal, they always come back with something, you know, maybe it's the eagle, maybe it's the dolphins, but they always say, and I hate the scorpion, right? I hate the scorpion. <laughs> so, you know, as I wrote the book, I didn't realize just how nasty scorpions are. Um, and the analogy there is great because scorpions not only are poisonous and can, can bite you, they also eat their young. There's a subtle message in that. They eat their young. In corporate America, when you're part of an environment where they eat their young, they're not developing you the right way. They're not mentoring you the right way. And to that question that, that we just got, 
you're going to be able to recognize the difference. You will be able to recognize the difference in your mentors. I tell the story about myself where I was given an opportunity to accelerate my career by joining the executive suite upstairs. But the, the person that was going to be impacted most by that was my manager. And my manager looked at me and said, this is a no-brainer. You need to do this. He was going to be negatively impacted, but he did that for me. Those are the types of people that you want to choose as mentors that have your back, are not venomous. They're looking out for you. They're looking out for your own development. And they're the type of people that you want to surround yourself with. And what happens if you do have a scorpion as a manager? How can you get away from that? Yeah, I want you to remember what I talked. I want you to remember the Mandarin Duck story. The Mandarin Duck didn't start out beautiful, was a chick, which was cute, but was this beautiful creature that flew into a pond. And in the book, we talk about him looking different and people going to look, go and view him. In fact, I took my executive team on a 40 block walk to go find the Mandarin duck. It already left. One day the duck just got up and left. And in the story of the Mandarin duck, what I'm trying to convey is if your colors are not appreciated, your outcome is your choice. Leave the pond. Now I'm not telling you not to give people second chances and third chances. If some of the Covey principles, which Judy, I'm sure you read, are to understand that someone might be having a bad day or something might be impacting their lives. But if you give someone several chances and, and they prove to be scorpions, just pick up and leave. And you can navigate larger companies, you can navigate and leave one scorpion to go find another den to go hang out in. So there's actually a question which may go back to the Mandarin duck, um, and that is from Aileen, and um, she's she's actually 15, I think, um, and she's asking, would it be detrimental to one's self-value if you were to offer your efforts as a volunteer? now as opposed to waiting till you could actually be an apprentice and get paid oh um so when she says volunteer she means in commercial world or a nonprofit world is that, oh, is that I, I don't uh, either way she, she's looking for a tech role and <laughs> she's thinking how can i become that mandarin duck early on is it can, can i volunteer should I wait till I can be a fully paid person or can, can I start acquiring my secret source early? So first off, I, I'm so impressed that we have a 15 year old that's asking that, that question. Look, I, 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 would not, I would not discourage someone from beginning their journey if they want to or if they choose to at 15. Um, I probably wouldn't parallel that to the mandarin duck i would parallel that to the egg and i do think that you can create skill sets and get a head start on your journey by by experiencing things in your teenage years in fact some people are 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 privileged in that way they're given more experiences early on in life that gives them a head start which which frankly judy is is one of the things that christina and i talked a lot about in the book that if if someone hasn't been taught these skill sets or was in the boat like I was with my dad, who was guiding me through the river, um, the book might be an opportunity for someone that is doesn't have the privilege to sort of get those experiences to, as I put it in the book, to jump in the boat and go fishing with me and, and learn a little bit about what they're headed into. But certainly if you're a 15 year old and you want to, um, you want to, um, you know, strengthen your, your muscles before you get into higher education, you should do it. I would encourage you, if you can afford to, to do it um, through philanthropy. Um, I think that, that, that for two reasons. One, I think that that will expose you to a lot of goodness in this world. And in addition to that, when you get involved in those organizations, you can see things from beginning to end a lot quicker than a, than, than a bigger company. So Eileen, you could volunteer for a nonprofit in a tech role, and that way you could combine both. It's interesting. We have actually 
the two sides of the age distribution here, we have somebody who was one year ahead of you in school, Michael Fenster. Oh, and I'm I wondering whether, um, do you, I don't know if you remember him. I think, I think anyone who went to school in the 90s knows Michael. Um, and so the question is, how do you re-enter the workforce? Are there any analogies that you would apply here to re-enter the workforce during this time period? Yeah. Um, are there any you know, that, that's, that, that are relevant? You know, that, that, is, that is a really good question. Um, we haven't talked about dolphins yet. Um, and, and, and dolphins is about team. Um, and hopefully through your previous work experience, you were part of a team. And part of that team was a group of people that had your back or helped you develop. Um, I would suggest that you reach out back to that team. I do think I am a little bit biased in this topic because I've had a number of people that have talked to me about this. I think the educational institutions, including our institution, has some really good reentry programs. Um, I would encourage people to do those reentry programs so that you can sharpen your skills and you can show employers that you're, 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 you're accelerating yourself back to a point from where you left to a point that you're ready to re-enter the workforce. If you, if, you, if you have the means to do that, I would encourage people to do that. But I think that that question, if I were to parallel it to the book, um, it would be back to having the right mentors and leaning back on them that you had in the past to help direct you. Let's get back to the animal kingdom here. And um, I have to say one of my favorite animals in the book was the dolphin and the, and, and the team of dolphins. So um, what are the implications for careers? Yeah. You know, if there was ever a point in the year and a half journey of putting this book together that I said, I need to continue, this is going to do good for the world. And if I can create one better leader, get us one step closer to a lupus cure or one cleaner river for environmental sustainability, there was ever a time that I said, I have to keep going. It was through this story. And it, it's not only the essence of the story. It's also if you if you Google shark attack dolphin, what came up that day was a pod of dolphins protecting a surfer from a shark attack. And the date of that prevention was on my birthday. I don't, I, so, you know, to me, it was so ironic that it was, that that true story actually happened on, on my, my birthday. And, and this story is about building the right team, a pot of dolphins that protects you from shark attacks. I, I'm, I'm very precise in letting you know that the corporate jungle can be fierce. It can be. And you are going to get attacked, not just by scorpions, by sharks. And to have the right pod is very important in building the right team. But too often, Judy, when we think of team, we think of just our core team that is going to execute. Your team is a lot broader than that. It's your team. It's your other stakeholders. And it's other people that you need to influence. And I frankly, um, I mean, you know what a wonderful job I think that you and Quinnipiac has done during COVID. But I think that's the perfect example of the extended team coming together. It's not only you, the team that you built in the administration. It's not only the faculty. It had to be the students. It had to be the students' parents. It had to be the state and local governments. All of you had to come together to continue to educate our children and to continue to protect them. Now, was there a shark here and there that we had, you know, that you had to defend the clear mission of doing those two things? Sure but you had a pot of dolphins around you that allowed you not only to do that and not only for the institution to come out stronger, but for us to stay, stay, stay on course to our, our long-term strategic plan. You know, I think also the example that you gave in the book about how the dolphins care for those that are injured maybe in their midst, um, you might want to tell that. And, and that's really an analogy to how teams buck you up and make you stronger. Yeah, yeah. In, in some, have, when they're behind you, yeah. 
in some instances, dolphins team better than humans. Um, that there's a part of the story like that. But in, in your in 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 what you're suggesting, I purposely put that story in where they took an injured surfer, different than the one um, on November eighth, and they, they they brought that surfer to safety. And in that, what I'm what I'm trying to say is that there are going to be times that teammates get injured, and the most valuable thing that you can do for a teammate that's injured is to offer them a helping hand. And I want to tie this to a question from Christina. Um, I mentioned um, sometimes that the great coach John Wooden of, of basketball fame said, whatever you do in life, surround yourself with smart people who will argue with you. And Christina is asking, how do you argue for something you think you deserve when there's a promotion or a raise that you think you deserve and fight for it? How, how do you argue? with your boss without it torpedoing your career? Yeah, yeah, it, it's a good question. So first off, I don't know if I, if I ever told you this, but when I left graduate school, I wrote a note to a famous coach and asked them if I could come work for free on their staff because I always wanted to be an NBA coach. And now that we have Mike Z on our board, I'm hoping <laughs> that maybe he'll take a, a 50, 50 or 50 something. Never too um, late. And, and put me on the on the on the Pistons bench. I don't think I don't think that would be good for Mike's career if Mike's listening. Um, I, I think it's a, I think it's a great question, and I, I think that in the question um, is really the person assessing the culture of the organization. Do you have a forum to ask questions? Are you part of a team that allows you and and a manager or a boss that allows you to ask those questions? And I would say to you, and I would encourage you to raise your hand and ask questions or offer your opinions, offer your insights. And if you're shut down, I would give it one more chance. You want to be part of an organization that values you, values your opinions, values your insights. If it, if it happens again where you're getting shut down, I would ask for a private meeting. Because sometimes mentees or employees help their bosses out and help them understand how they're being viewed. And by you sitting down and saying, look, I keep offering my insights to you and you don't seem to value them, they might recognize a development need in themselves. If it continues and continues, I'll go back to what I keep, where I started the story with the Mandarin duck that left. You are in charge of your own outcome. You're in charge of your own career. Go to a place that you're valued. Yeah, and of course, that's a message for managers too, that you're not going to attract the best talent if you shut them down. That's right. That's exactly right. Um, okay, the sixth wonderful animal is the eagle. And, it, and you paint implications for both those in the nest and those feeding uh, the nest. In other words, the managers. So talk about both. Yeah. So this I say in the book is my favorite. And I think it continues to be my favorite, although some days I wake up and I maybe change my mind just a little. But then when I read again and when I get prepared to answer questions or get prepared for a, an event, I, I gravitate back. And um, it's always been frustrating to me. Not, let's take people away from it for a second. It's been frustrating to me when organizations feed the largest, loudest chick. If you don't know, maybe back up the story about the eagle. A mom builds a nest. The nest is in Alaska. She has two chicks. What happens normally in an eagle's in an eagle nest is their sibling rivalry, and the bigger chick that starts to get fed more kills off the younger, the younger chick. And mom only raises one chick. That doesn't happen in my book. In my book, both chicks are raised, and mom sits back and they soar one day. And it's always been frustrating to me to watch organizationally where you have two different functions, one smaller than the other, the larger function getting fed and the smaller one being killed off by the larger function. You can parallel that to people, the squeaky wheel getting fed and the, 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 the um, quieter eaglet not getting fed. An effective leader can recognize talent and has and spends the time to feed all of its eaglets. And an effective leader, Judy, you and I both share this, I know, takes pride in watching all of their chicks soar. 
there's nothing that I find more prideful in business than is watching all of the people that I've mentored over 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 my career soar. And today, some of them soaring past me. Um, so my message to leaders is: you need to recognize that, that is that will when you look back on your career, that's the thing you're going to look back on: the valuable time that you spent with people, feeding them, and watching them get to the next levels of, of their professional life. And maybe, and, and maybe feeding them a bit differently, recognizing that they are different. That there are differences, right? One might be small, but might be, but might still be, um, it might still have a ton of potential. Um, and then, you know, we've talked a lot about the, the, the individual employee. I would say make sure you're getting fed. I mean, it's the same message. Make sure you're getting fed, that you're working with a leader that appreciates the notion that everyone has potential and is drawing your best potential out of you. And don't be afraid to speak up about it. Right. That's exactly right. Um, so then you, you come to uh, the last the last animal, and that is a dog and I'm very partial to dogs and I have two mutts and you talk about the power of diversity and the health of having a team of mutts rather than a team of the same purebreds. Yeah so it behind the scenes because of what's going on in the world this chapter got the most level of attention by the many people that read the book um, and I had Christina is um, my editor was an underrepresented minority and I had a few others that read it and they said this is perfect this is the way it this is the way it should be it should be written and my message on diversity is that diverse teams are more powerful than anything else that you can build the diversity of thought is more powerful than anything else that you can build and I try and bring that out through the dog story in the story about the dog, it's the German Shepherd I talk about. A German Shepherd is a very popular breed. Everybody wants a German Shepherd. I don't, I'm afraid of German Shepherds. But they're overbred. And I go to the point that too much of one thing is not a good thing. And in, over that, in that overbreeding, they have hip problems and they die at very, early, very young ages. And what I'm trying to encourage people to understand is that too much of one thing is not a good thing. And there are countless stories in my career where I had diverse teams and diversity of thought, people that didn't look like me, people that weren't brought up by me. They were brought up in different countries. They had very different backgrounds. And because of that diversity of thought, we had very powerful strategic ambitions together that we were able to achieve that we frankly could not have achieved without diversity of thought in the room. It's as simple as that for me. There's, there's, not, there's not much much more to it. I want to um, now turn to, so, so you remember all of the seven animals, everyone will remember them. They're very, um, they, they each have a unique character and a unique analogy and they'll be part of your lingo in no time. I, I promise you having, having already um, been affected that way. And I encourage people to add uh, their questions and I'm going to one in uh, now. So, let me quote Steve Jobs, who said that, and this is coming from Steve Jobs, so this means something, about half of what separates successful entrepreneurs from the non-successful ones is pure perseverance. Um, so what role did perseverance play in your life? And is that something that you look for in others? Um a huge part of my life was was centered on perseverance. And, and as I think about that word, I think about the people that were before me in my family. Um, we, we were Italian immigrants. Um, there are stories of my great grandparents trying to get into um, our country, um, the United States, four times. Imagine taking a ship which I imagine was a, a wooden ship. And in my brain, it's always been this old wooden ship trying to get in the country and being sent back. And some of them, a dad and the children staying, my, grand, my great grandmother going back. They persevered to get to this country for a better life for us. And then I, I think of my, I often talk about my two grandfathers 
my grandfather with the, we used to call him grandpa with the gum because he always had gum. He was a construction worker and he wasn't valued in his first job, didn't speak English, he was illiterate. He picked up his pail and a shovel. He walked 20 blocks in Manhattan and started working somewhere else and spent the next 30 years and got a great pension for his family. And my other grandfather who pushed my dad to be the first person in our family ever to graduate college, having that vision. I, when I, every day I, 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 I've come into my career since Quinnipiac, frankly, which is where I really started to understand the value of what my family paved for me beforehand, has been rooted in the word perseverance, how I can persevere to give back to what they had paved the way for me and to give it back in the, in the form of, for my, for, for my own children. So Jonathan asks about, and this I suppose is tied to perseverance, if you have any daily routines or rituals that you think are important to your success and maybe tie that into also things that are non-work because I know you have a lot of hobbies and yeah. outside interests. Okay, okay, yeah. Um, well, the daily routine, um, I maybe just the daily routine, which doesn't change. I, I'm an early morning person. Uh, you know that I get my steps every day. Um, so I work out every day. Um, but I, I start my day at, 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 at six. Um, my day ends earlier than most because I'm, I, I leave it all on the line. So um, the joke is, can dad make it to nine tonight? Um, but I, I start my day at six. Um, but in your in your question about routine and, and 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 the broader aspect of that, you know, one thing that we talk about, we probably don't use these words as mind, body, soul in our house. Um, I spend a lot of time on on body. I'm an ex athlete, and therefore I do work out every day. Um, in COVID, frankly, twice a day because the boys are home and we get to lift together now. So I've started to lift again. I haven't done that in a while. In addition to the, the cardio on the mind side, I am an avid fisherman. Part of the reason that environmental sustainability is important to me. And that's where I turn it off, right? You need to turn it off and you need to turn off the world and you need to turn off the work. And I'm able to do that both working out and when I'm on a stream or I'm in the ocean, I'm able to turn it off. And then soul, um, you know, that it's private, but I pray, I'm going to do and make a habit of that. And uh, I think that if you if you incorporate that into your life, mind, body, soul, and also a, a ritual that gets the most out of you, you'll be usually successful on your path to butterfly. And how how do you think that makes you better in your job? Yeah, I mean, I particularly think turning it off makes you more effective and I think people lose that um, the other thing I, 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 I practice and when I was now you have to, I have to be a, I have to be realistic with this right so when I was the chief risk officer of our firm my phone had to be on so for that for that three and a half four years that was a that was a role that was a fabulous role professionally the best role I ever had professionally was being a risk officer because I, I got to see everything across the organization in a very unique way. But it did take a toll on you professionally because you always had to be on. Something could happen on the weekend. But in general, so that's four years of my 30 plus, um, I try and turn it off on the weekend. I don't bring my phone with me to dinner. I try and turn off the mind. And I think if you read Jack Welsh's book, he actually talks about that. And that's the reason that he, he catapulted catapulted himself to CEO because he would turn it off on the weekends. And when he came in, everybody was half half dead on Monday because they worked through the weekends. You have to turn it off. You have to turn it off. Um, so let, let's just talk about um, what you look for in young people and also what make great quality leaders. Beyond whatever the job-specific expertise is that you're looking for, what are the qualities that you generally look for in young applicants on jobs as you as you seek your next Mandarin duck? Yeah. Well, um, William has the tagline, stay hungry. Yeah. And we want people to be hungry. 
you're coming out of fine institutions with high GPAs, highly competitive, great competencies. Um, but you have to show me that you're hungry. And trust me, every interaction that you're having with a senior leader, we are testing you. We are. We have a way of testing you without you knowing that we're testing you. I, I, had, I, I have a lot of people that reach out to me for different roles, whether it's inside you know, Deloitte or whether it's, can you help me get here? Um, just recently, I asked someone to change the resume um, because I didn't like the way in which it was showing him and I wanted him to show the best he could. And two weeks later, he gave me his resume. And in my world, my expectation is that you're getting back to me in an hour. Um, that's a very hard transition, by the way, for, for college kids, um, in particular, because you're so used to text and IM and snap and all those things that I know of only because my kids use it. It's everything's done through email, which now today is like snail mail. Um, but the, the, the thought is that you need to check your email every day. But we, we test you that way. Judy, we, we test you. We give you tests. Some of that is oftentimes we'll ask you to do something and see how you react to that do something. Maybe you should consider doing this. And then if you don't even engage on it, we feel like you don't understand what we're asking you or you're not hungry enough to understand what we're asking you. I hope that's clear. I, well, can you give us a couple more examples of how it might show through as you're interviewing for a job? Well, yeah, I, I, I can, um, and I don't want to. I don't want to um, violate the privacy of any conversations I may have. So let me let me try and be careful with, with how I articulate that. But um, there may be an opportunity at at, at a place like like uh, where I, where I am today, and you say you want to come to that. You want to come to us, um, and then. The ask is, well, where do you want to where do you want to be? Well, you haven't done any homework yet about what the organization actually does, right? You just want to come. Well, if you're hungry, you're really taking a look and you're looking at what skill sets you have and what value you can provide, and you've had the ability to articulate what that value is. And to say you just don't know to me means you didn't then take your your learnings, go to the career services center and say, hey, I'm really thinking about coming to a, a professional services firm and I wanna do workforce transformation. If you come to me with an undergraduate degree and say, I really wanna do workforce transformation, you haven't done your homework that most of the students that we hire into that area are MBAs. The career services center knows that. So if you're an undergrad coming there, you haven't done a ton of homework on that. If you say, I want to do risk management and your degree is in marketing, it's sort of a red flag. Like, why do you want to do that, right? Um, if you're able to articulate it, that's fantastic. But more often than not, people are, they're not hungry enough to do the research, to spend time with career services, to spend time with their resume, to then attack the workforce. Okay? So there's a question here from Gustavo who says, what is your most recent experience of being hungry with this pandemic? Now, is Gustavo a friend of yours? Uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I okay, rest, because so. you, you laughed at that. Okay. okay, so what is your most recent experience of being hungry? Yeah. Whether during this pandemic or otherwise. <laughs> uh, look, I, I, I set forth on a journey I mentioned it, um, what the, you know, sort of the outcome that we want to achieve is with one better leader, one step closer to a lupus cure and, and, and one, um, one step cl closer to a cleaner fishery. The, as this book got written over the last year and a half, the energy in the last four months took daily energy. And there were times that you could get to a point of frustration that someone that wasn't as hungry to create this book and therefore the philanthropy that comes with this book, they could have walked away. And I didn't walk away and it's not just me. I don't wanna give myself the credit. Amy and Alameda and Alexia gave me energy around it. What also gave me energy, and I, I do wanna highlight this with 10 minutes left. I mean, of course my family, 
but we started to create strategic partnerships between the university and the Lupus Foundation of America and watershed associations in the, in, in the Connecticut, New York, Massachusetts area, the New Jersey area. And in addition to that, the impact that we've had in the lupus community with people reaching out that have lupus and our ability to connect them now with the Lupus Foundation of America and for them to ask to join an advisory board around the foundation, that has fueled my energy, but it's my hunger that drove us to that. So it's a great question. There's a lot of twists and turns through COVID that could have had us walk away from this and we refuse to do so. You know, Megan asks that question, what motivated you to write this book? And, you know, we've had quite a few conversations about this. And I, I would think that the other part is that you're really committed to the mentorship role, that that is what fuels your energy. And, and I think you wanted to provide that pr permanent legacy. Yeah, and, and that's in the story of the Eagles, right? I mean, that's why it's my favorite chapter. I want to coach people. I want to mentor people. I, 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 I um, in the chapter, I tell you, and this is a, a, a true story of a, a, a young leader um, that is a chief revenue officer who wants to be the CEO of a technology company. And he came right out and asked me to mentor him. And I meet with him every two weeks to have a conversation about his career. And he's getting closer and closer to being a CEO. I enjoy that, that time with him. And I say it in the book that he thanks me at the end of every conversation. And I, I feel like I'm the one who should be thanking him. We, you, Judy, you're a phenomenal leader. You know this. We want to give you our time. Now, there's 300 people on this, on this, on this webcast. We clearly can't do 300, but we do want to give you, the, give you our time. We want to give as much time as we possibly can to as many people as we possibly can in a coaching and mentoring role. So you nailed it. The other leg of this stool was not just the philanthropy. It was the energy I want to do with doing things like this, speaking engagements where I talk to people, I educate them on the soft skills of leadership, and hopefully change someone into a better leader. Um. I do want to pick up on that theme that you just um, mentioned about really your engagement as a trustee. Um, you've, you've been a Bobcat for life, a loyal Bobcat for life, and you've given us an awful lot. What, what is it that uh, really motivates you to be a philanthropist with Allison? and also to give so much of your time and, and really mental energy to, to this. And this, yeah. didn't start, this didn't start at the end of your career. It started very early on. Uh, no. And that's an interesting well, question for young people. Yeah. Um, you know, we were not educated around um, philanthropy as it relates to the university when I came out of school. It just wasn't part of the education process. And I wish it had been because it would have kept me connected to the school even earlier than when I did get engaged. And I, as I assess myself, um, and when I, when I became a board of trustee, I came into it saying I was a C plus at best back to my university. And I really believe that. I'm now a B and maybe heading towards B plus with, with the book. And, and I mean that also, um, you know, philanthropy has always been important in our family, um, but truthfully for it, it's been driven more by Allison than it has been by me. Um, she volunteers at a number of different places. She pushes us to, to do lupus walks and to um, help the homeless and, and do different things. And as I got to a different stage in my, career and frankly with my engagement with Quinnipiac now it's educated me so much on what our philanthropy does and I'm going to steal your words around sustainability because it, it, it's exactly what our philanthropy does it helps our students live the right way learn the right way and lead in our communities the right way they live better they learn better and they they lead in our communities better. And 
you can use the university and trust that the proceeds that are going from a book to the university are going to contribute to those three things. So philanthropy is, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say, so philanthropy has become important, but philanthropy in particular with, with, with QU has become important because I have this safe haven to understand that it's going to be used the right way. Um, by the way, those words, live, learn, lead, are from our sustainability plan and the great sustainability committee uh, led by two of our professors. Um, maybe two very quick questions because we're virtually out of time. Um, number one, you thrive on innovation, but I know that sometimes you've been suffocated in your desire to be in an innovative role and innovative culture. So how do you develop an innovation mindset as a young entrant and how do you seed an innovation culture as a manager? And I know that's a huge question, but maybe 60 seconds so that we can get to the last question. I wish we had more time for it. Um, I would say frustrated. Um, I think I'm going to do this very quick. I, I think strategy is an interesting thing that people have made very complex. Strategy, well, every strategy has four pillars, growth, operational excellence, people, and innovation. And too often, short-termism takes shape. And that short-termism makes CEOs and leaders and boards get very focused on the short term and reward operational excellence, short-term growth, and the people associated with it. And they immediately neglect people and, and, and the people that are driving the innovation. They neglect it and therefore neglect their long-term strategic plan. So to leaders, you can't let that happen. You need courage to not let that happen. To people, be very wary of an organization that says we innovate, but at every turn, they cut the innovation budget. That's my 60 seconds, sorry. Last question from Anthony. And this will be a perfect one for you to end on. What do you recommend as a first, po the first point of engagement when you are seeking out a mentor that you really want to mentor you? First point of engagement? With a, with a mentor that you are seeking? Yeah, I, I, I mean. <laughs> How do you engage think, them? What do you say? Yeah, I, there's so much use of technology today. Um, you know, I don't think it could be blind. You want some connection to that person so that you have a trusted advisor. You want that advisor to be trusted. But I would encourage you through, through what I say in the book to ask the question, will you help me get to here? Ask the question. People want to spend time. They want to help you develop. Just ask the question. I don't think it can be a blind thing. Like if you don't know me and send me a note, will you mentor me? There's no, there's no personal connection. But I do think for people that you that, that you do know, just ask the question and be clear about what you're trying to get to. And why they can help you. Yeah, why they in particular can help exactly you. Exactly right. Exactly right. Okay, we could have gone on for a lot longer. Um, thank you so much for the gift of the book, the legacy of the book, and for all you're doing um, as, as really an exemplary Bobcat for life. I mean, we're just following in your trails. So thank you, and I hope everyone got as much out of this as, as I did. Thanks, Chuck, for everything you do. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into my conversation with Chuck Sayer about his new book, You Got This Kid, Words of Advice for Young Leaders, which advises young leaders on finding success in their career path. All proceeds from the book, which is available on Amazon, are being donated to the Sayer Family Fund at Quinnipiac, which benefits lupus research and environmental sustainability efforts. The Way Forward event series is directed by Caroline Natale, and the podcast is produced by QU student Brian Murphy. To learn more about Quinnipiac's podcast studio and the stories we're telling, visit qu.edu slash podcast and check us out on Instagram and Twitter at QU Podcasts. On the next episode of The Way Forward and as part of Black History Month, our Dean of the Law School, Jennifer Brown, and I are joined by Tony Bush, 
Executive Vice President and Global Head of Government Affairs for News Corp, and Alicia Spearman, General Counsel and VP for Human Resources at Quinnipiac. We'll discuss the range of career paths available to law graduates and how to ascend the ladder in government, nonprofits, and the corporate world as a female who is Black. Join us on The Way Forward. <music>